Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our online worship experience. My name is Peyton Minsmeyer. I'm one of the ministers here at the Vero Beach Church of Christ, and I will be taking Tracy's place for the next month as he's on a sabbatical. And I am grateful that Tracy left me with the simple topic of anxiety and depression and worry to talk about his first week of being gone. In all seriousness, I have never personally struggled with cases of anxiety or depression, but like everybody uh, watching this, I have been affected in some way by these mental health conditions. And while what we will discuss here will be addressing the common worry and anxiety we all feel, I recognize that God has put into the world psychiatrists and therapists and even medication to help those with ongoing and more clinical conditions. In this sermon, we are talking about the symptoms of anxiety and worry, not anxiety and worry as a condition. But let me say this right at the beginning and right at the top. Do not face these dark moments alone. We were not designed to be alone. God did not create us to be alone. And these are some of the hardest moments that you might face. And though our cultural practices and our habits often pull us into isolation, I believe one of the greatest treatments for this plague that's, con- that's contagious and is spreading all over our Western world is to be with other people. Plus, whenever you read something, like you read in our passage this morning, like do not worry or do not be anxious, when Jesus says that, it, it almost feels like telling a woman who's about to go into labor which I'm going to experience for the very first time here pretty soon. It's like telling a a woman about to go into labor not to feel pain. Like it feels like an inevitable component of the experience. Like to not worry, how am I supposed to do that? Like worry seems like, and I would dare say it is part of the human experience. And so what we have to do to understand this teaching from Jesus about anxiety and worry in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, is we have to understand the context that Jesus is addressing anxiety and worry. And the context is not likely one that you anticipate. See, Jesus' context is in the context of idolatry. So if you reflect back to our most recent lessons, Jesus has been teaching us through Tracy to not do the things that we do for the praise of other people. Now, that's a natural inclination of the human heart, right? to be desired, to be admired, to be needed by other people. But what often happens is those things turn into vain pursuits. They turn into a desire in me to be praised and to be exalted even at the expense of other people. And folks, that is idolatry. An easy definition of idolatry is to place anything in a position over God to be praised or exalted. Oftentimes when we think of idolatry, We hear it in the context of our Old Testament Bibles, and we think of these little golden statues. But when Jesus talks about idolatry here, and when he's addressing it, he's talking about my desire to have power, my desire to be comfortable, my desire to have sustainability over God's will for my life. And all of it falls under the same definition of idolatry. So last week, Tracy talked talked to us about if we are seeking the approval of the world or we're seeking the approval of people in your life for ultimate satisfaction, you're naturally going to turn to possessions and wealth and things of this world. You're going to seek to master the world. You're going to seek to master the market. You're going to seek to master your job. 
to master other people in your life, like your family. But the irony is that in your pursuit of mastery, it's you yourself that's going to be mastered. You're going to be mastered by the tyrant of these fickle gods that are going to master you and you're going to give your affection supremely over to them. And in the end, your heart's going to be left broken. Jesus said, in the end, you're going to have to choose between two masters. And choosing the wrong master can have devastating effects on your life, leaving you feeling empty and desperate and unfulfilled just like you were before. Do you choose God, placing him at the center of your existence? Or do you choose these other gods in your life that you have placed at your center, that your life and your identity is determined by? So this morning, Jesus is going to deal with the outcome of choosing the wrong master. You know, it's extremely hard to please false gods, and it's extremely difficult to, to, um, to keep false gods and fickle gods happy. And if you have placed you at the center of your existence, you know it's extremely difficult to keep you happy. If, if you have placed other people, maybe somebody you're in a relationship married to for 50 years or dating for five days, if you've placed them at the center of your existence, they're not going to be able to handle the level of devotion that you require. If you've placed other things at the center of your existence, your boat, your house, your income, your stocks, if you've placed those at the center of your existence, you know what it feels like not to have enough or to be afraid of losing what you do have. We have these other idols, these these things that we substitute and we place at the center of our existence. And our fear comes when we worry that these things will simply dispose of us like all the others have. That's where worry and anxiety generates from. We fear, you know, I, you know, we get a, a new iPhone 12 and this thing can, you know, be submerged under a hundred meters of water and get pictures of pitch blackness. It can, it can turn into a drone and fly off. It can, you know, make you see through walls. It can do all of these amazing things. And we think this is the thing that will give me fulfillment until the iPhone 20 comes out because they like to skip numbers in their process, right? We place these things at our center only to be disposed by them and left unfulfilled whenever they've moved on from us. And the extra layer that we feel as Christians is that we transpose the characteristics of fickleness and of hard to please. We transpose those characteristics to the one true God. And we begin to identify God in those ways. The inconsistency of faithfulness that we find in our idols is often carried over to the one true faithful God. And it generates questions inside of us. Like, does God really love me? Will God really provide for me? Am I really forgiven? And the reason those questions generate is because we have felt the sting of other gods who have gotten rid of us. And it creates worry and anxiety in us that I'm never going to find somebody who loves me. That I'm never going to have a job that fulfills me. That I'm never going to be in a place in my faith where I feel confident and comfortable. And it creates worry and anxiety. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here. And it's this natural tendency in the human condition to shape God out of our image or to shape him off of our experiences with the world. Versus to allow ourselves to be shaped by him. So we carry over this fear that we need to please God. 
We need to satisfy him or he's going to also dispose of us like all of these other things in our life. You know, that idea, it really locked in for me watching my youngest play with some of his toys. We're pretty simple around our house, but every once in a while, my wife and I, we go out of our way to get our boys nice things. You know, an action figure. I got my oldest a, a chess uh, set and taught him how to play chess. We get him new wheels for the driveway. We even put a basketball goal outside. And my youngest, he has access to all of these things. But you want to know what he decides to play with? A cheap 10 cent kazoo. (laughs) I think he got it out of like a treasure chest at school. He doesn't even know how to play the thing. But because that does the trick, we could dispose of everything else around the house and he would hardly notice. And that's what worries us with God. Like if I can't please God, if I can't satisfy him, he's going to simply dispose of me because that's what other gods have done to me. They've simply gotten rid of me whenever they were done. And I was left feeling empty and unfulfilled just like I was before. And this worries us. I think it's important if we're going to move any further in this lesson to define that word worry. It's one of those words that we use pretty loosely in our conversations, but has a depth of meaning and emotion attached to it. So it's important for us to define it. The Oxford uh, Dictionary definition of the word worry The very first one, to give way to anxiety or unease. I feel like that is a cop-out of using the word in the definition. I asked my oldest, uh, what does the word weight mean? And he responds, well, weight is what something weighs. I'm like, you know what? You got me, right? (laughs) So I don't think that's a very helpful definition. The second part is a little more helpful, though. To allow one's mind to dwell on actual, and this is key, or potential problems. So to allow my mind to dwell on problems that exist and problems I have to deal with, but also problems that do not exist and may never come into fruition, yet I allow my mind to sit on them. And maybe it's difficult for you to translate a definition over into practical life. And so here are some synonyms. And as I read them, just think to yourself, have I ever felt this at my job with that big project? Maybe it's something that happened around the dinner table in a conversation you had. Maybe it's a relationship that you're having right now with a friend or something else. To fret, to be concerned about, to agonize, to brood, to dwell on, to panic, to lose sleep, to get worked up, to fluster, to torment oneself. Yeah, we, we have felt those things. I know a couple people watching this this morning that have felt those things. There's another definition as you move to the bottom for Oxford. Uh, it's like an old use of the word worry, but I thought it was interesting. It's, it's uh, what a dog does to a bone. It's to tear at, to gnaw on, to drag around with your teeth. Uh, a sentence that you might use is, I found my dog contently worrying a bone. I, I never would say that. I've never heard anybody use worry that way. But I think the imagery describes the damage that worry can do to the soul. Worry, it wears us down. It drags us around the house. It tears us up. It's what psychologists call a bandwidth tax. Imagine your mind is like a CPU, like a computer. And if you overdrive that hard drive, what happens? It begins to move sluggish and slower. It becomes paralyzed. If you've ever had an outdated computer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like the mouse cursor moves slow. It like just stutters all the way to its place. And then you click it and there's like the, the spinning wheel of death. Like, is it going to kill my computer or is this page going to load eventually? And what happens to you as you wait for that spinning wheel to load? 
impatience, frustration, anger. And this is what worry does to us in our soul. We become impatient with ourselves or other people. We become angry or frustrated. Worry, it makes us be stagnant. We cannot move forward. We cannot make decisions. We're just stuck. And now I'm going to say something that I know you've likely heard many times. I know I have. But every time I hear it, it seems to be more and more true. Worry and anxiety and depression, they're at an all-time high these days. And within our rock condition of the COVID-19 pandemic and the recent presidential election, it's really hard to refute that statement, isn't it? Psychology Today, they're an online research article collection database. Um, They recently wrote an article about the rise of anxiety in the Western world. And this is a clip from one of those articles. Um, It says, one way or another, anxiety seems inextricably linked to the use of social media. And a swath of recent papers seem to suggest that this link is one of the core drivers of digital usage. So here's what they mean by that. These data show that while many people who use social media a great deal are anxious, when they are not using social media, they turn to social media to reduce this, this withdrawal anxiety and they end up with another form of anxiety produced by engaging with their digital platforms. If it was hard to follow that logic, it's a deadly cycle that we fall into. It's a double anxiety whammy and it's infiltrated your home It's infiltrated my home. It's beginning to have disastrous effects on even our grade school children. With the rise of social media comes the rise of the ego, the drift to the individual perspective that I am the most important thing in my existence. And this puts us at odds with the world. We're constantly in social media. We're comparing ourselves with the world and we're competing with the world that will quickly forget us the moment we step outside of its stream. And this is happening in middle school girl locker rooms, but it's also happening on the big stage of our favorite performer who's performing in front of a coliseum of fans. We sacrifice everything to maintain a status that's arbitrary and quickly fleeting. And I'm picking on social media right now, hoping that it gives you a window into your own heart and life. Because maybe social media is not something that you struggle with. Maybe you don't find your identity in social media in your life, and that's not at your center. But like we talked about last week, with wealth and possessions, you do struggle with that. You do worry about if your bank account falls under a certain number, even though that number is what most people in America make on average. You're worried about if you're going to pay the be able to pay the bills for that new boat you got or the nice house you got a couple years back. But maybe you don't worry about wealth and possessions. You were raised poor and you knew you were poor. Or maybe just that's never been a temptation or identity factor for you. But you do worry about what we talked about two weeks ago with your reputation and perception. You don't own much, but you do own your identity and how people perceive you. And if people begin not trusting you or you begin losing um, stature in your status, then all of those lies that you tell yourself, they become, begin to become more believable. It's a self-esteem issue, or maybe none of that. You don't deal with any of that. You just worry about your politician and that they're going to relieve you of all the plagues in your life. Whatever it is that you place at the center of your existence, Jesus wants to protect you from doing it. He wants to protect you from all of these false gods. I think it's important for us right here to ask the question, did Jesus worry? 
I said at the very beginning that worry is a natural part of the human experience. This is not a sermon trying to eliminate worry from your life. You are going to worry. If Jesus worried, you're going to worry. The question is not how do I eliminate worry, but what do I do with my worry and where do I direct it? Whenever I think of uh, Jesus worrying, two stories bubble up to the surface. The first comes from John chapter 11. Somebody had just approached Jesus and told him that his dear friend Lazarus is deathly ill. For whatever reason, Jesus decides to wait a couple of days before going to him. And whenever he finally does arrive, uh, he's approached by Lazarus's two sisters, Martha first, who says, Jesus, if you would have been here, you could have saved my brother. But he's gone. John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You can translate that last part as he was worried. He saw the pain of somebody else and he felt their pain. He began to weep and be downtrodden. But notice where is Jesus' worry um, focused? It's not a self-centered worry. It's not like, you're, you know what, Martha, you're right. If I would have been here, I could have saved my reputation or I could have saved my friend or I could have saved myself from a lot of this pain. No, Jesus saw somebody else's worry and it, and it ignited his. But there is a story where Jesus's worry seems to be a little more personal. Mark chapter 14, it's a climax of Jesus's ministry. Jesus is about to move into the worst day of his life. He's about to go to be tormented and tortured and killed on a Roman cross. <clears throat> but the night before, Jesus finds himself in a garden. We call it the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 33 of Mark 14, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus begins to have a visceral reaction to his circumstances. He knows what the next day has entailed for him. And he has what we in the modern day call an anxiety attack. I mean, he's trembling. He's sweating blood. He's crying out to God. God, I do not want to do this. If you could take this cup from me, please do it. But your will be done. And some remarkable things happen in that moment. First, Jesus he gives his worry to the only place where that worry can be handled. He gives his worry to God. And the second thing is that Jesus left his worry in that garden. And as he moved into the next day, there's not a hint of it left in him. Jesus always had an other-centered mindset, even in the depth of his worry. Worry is a natural thing. And this isn't a sermon that you need to worry less or sin less so that you'll worry less. Or if you're sinning more, you're going to worry more. If you're worrying, you're not praying hard enough. No, worry is a natural part of the human experience. If Jesus worried, you are going to worry. No, the question is not how do I eliminate worry, but what do I do with my worry and where do I direct it? And so Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious. Do not worry about your physical existence concerning what you have to eat or drink or how you'll clothe your body. Jesus claims, you know, life's not about food. Though many of our days revolves around food and it's structured around it. We don't worry about, um, you know, or many of our days is worried about, you know, my meals and what am I going to eat and who am I going to be with? Jesus says life's not about that. He says life's not about clothes. So many of us make sure we're wearing the best getup. 
We're wearing the most flattering clothes, as most fashionable. Instead, what does Jesus say life's about? It's about life in God's kingdom. Now think about the implications of that statement for just a moment. Life is about, if we believe God's kingdom is eternal, and we believe, and Jesus says life today, right now, is about life in God's kingdom, Jesus is essentially saying life that we're living, eternity, has begun already. We are living eternity. Eternity is not something, once you die, eternity opens up to you. Eternity is happening now. And we have to live within our eternity and look at God's creation. Nature itself has God's fingerprints on it. We have God's fingerprints on it. And Jesus reminds us to look around at nature to give us insight to God's character and God's kingdom. You know, I preached about this in the Sermon on the Mount a couple weeks ago. Another time, Jesus looked at nature to give him insight to God's character and God's kingdom. Then it was about rain and sunshine. Now it's about birds and lilies. But regardless, Jesus had a God-saturated view of the world. And he says, look at the birds. Like They don't worry about where their food's going to come from. God provides what they need. Now, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., old theologian Martin Luther, he had this pithy statement. He said, God provides food for the birds, but he doesn't drop it into their beaks. Essentially, what he's saying is that like the birds, you will have to work and sometimes work hard within God's kingdom. But if you're doing your part, God is going to provide his disciples basic needs. We have to adopt, according to Jesus, some kind of unconscious, trusting faith that God will give me what I need. Not what I want, what I need. That seems pretty simplistic for a lot of us. Too simplistic. But if our treasures are in heaven, not here, then we can live freely in the present. Now, we, it's important to note, take a little side note here of who Jesus is talking to here. Jesus' crowd is very much those who worry about where their next meal is going to come from or if they will have clothes to clothe their body. These are real issues for these people. But Jesus is challenging even the poorest among us to recognize that there's more important issues to life than food and clothes and shelter and the such. However, most, most of us watching this video are not poor. We don't live wondering where our next meal is coming from, not with McDonald's and Taco Bell down the road. We don't worry about what clothes we're going to wear, not with closets full enough to clothe an entire village. Now, the most, most of us, so the, the question is, what does this lesson have to do with me? I don't worry about these things. No, we don't worry about not having enough, but we do worry about losing what we have. And that reality and that fear has come to the foreground for many during the COVID pandemic. We're worried about missing out on that promotion or that salary, salary bump because our business hasn't um, accrued the annual income that it usually does. So how am I going to pay for my toys and my bills and my kids' college and the likes? We're worried. Many in this country are worried about losing their job entirely. We're worried about our politician, the new, the change of politician power or whatever, the new one coming in. We're worried about what is this going to do to the stock market? What's it going to do to my business? What's it going to do to my day-to-day? -day? Our, our houses are more secure than Fort Knox. Our pantries are filled to the brim because we want to protect what's in and we never want to feel what it's like to have not enough. We do everything in our power to be secure, to be comfortable, to be sustained, to keep what we have. But Jesus recognized that some people would rather starve than look bad. And this is another thing 
that we put at our center. Because Jesus says it's great that you're protecting your own, you're being good stewards, but you're losing sight of who this is all coming from. So Jesus recognized that people worry about their physical appearance just as much as they care about what they have and protecting what they have. That's why he says, look at the flowers. God lavishly gives them attention and beauty. And he's not worried about their survival. Like Jesus says, flowers are here today and they'll be gone tomorrow. Yet even so, God lavishes on them a craftsmanship-like care that even the most ostentatious monarch would envy. How much more will he, de- he provide for his disciples? If God, the sustainer and creator of everything, and you have been made in his image, if he provides beauty and flowers that die within a week or in a couple of days in my household, if he provides them beauty, how much more will he provide the needs of those who follow him? His needs, not his wants. And that's an important line to draw for all of us, an important point for us to drag out a little bit further. You see, the key to happiness and the key to kingdom living is we must find fulfillment in our needs, not our wants. And deciphering that line in each of our lives is perhaps the most rewarding thing that we can do for our own well-being, but also our spiritual walk. You see, by looking at nature, Jesus concluded that God is going to provide your needs. But the rub is going to come whenever you recognize that your needs and your wants don't always line up together. In fact, much of the pain that we experience in life stems from that reality. See, my boys, they received a bucket full of Halloween candy this past season. And they desire it. They want it. Their teeth could be rotten out of their mouth. They could have a stomach ache from eating too much. And they would want a candy bar for the remedy. But just because they want it and just because they desire it doesn't mean they need it. In fact, it's probably better for them if I keep it from them or only partially give it. Like if you have everything you want, you're worried about losing it. If you don't have everything that you want, you're worried about never obtaining it. And no matter which side of the line that you fall on, this is a destroying living with God in the moment. And even if you find a way to live with God in the moment with another thing at your center other than God, you begin to transpose the characteristics of fickleness and hard to please over to the one true God. If Jesus is not the center of you, is not in your center, you are never going to find equilibrium. If if, If other things are more important than your relationship with Jesus, then you are never going to find fulfillment in your life. You're going to fall into a continual cycle of worry and anxiety because you're placing your fulfillment in things that cannot sustain. That's why Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Come to me because I love you and I knew what I was doing whenever I created you. And I'm not going to give you something that will last for a phase or last for a season or last for a generation. I'm going to give you something eternal. It's why the author of Proverbs wrote, God, don't give me so much that I forget you, but so little that I hate you. And then Jesus concludes our section this morning by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Essentially, he's saying, trust God with your entire life. Make his ways your ways. Become a covenant partner with him. Make his concerns your concerns and create time in your day to be shaped, to allow your heart 
and your mind to be shaped by his words, not by your news outlet, not by your, the YouTube influencer you follow, not by your social media feed, to be shaped by his words. And if you can do that and you can place Jesus at your center, all of these other outlets in life begin to see for what they really are. You see, I like other beautiful things. I like movies and music. I like working out and uh, keeping my yard looking maintained and nice. I like all of these things and I have no problem enjoying them. Just like I don't think you should have a problem enjoying the pleasantries in your life. I can enjoy these things in life as long as they don't become my God. Because I know they can be taken from me just as quickly as they were given. Like my jeans that fit today may not fit tomorrow. Like the dad bod, it's a real thing, folks. But all of that is put into perspective when God is my center, not the size of my body. God is my center, not the knowledge in my head. God is my center, not the money in my wallet right now or my bank account. God is my center, not the acreage around my house. God is my center, not the politician in my party. God is my center, not that relationship I've devoted so much time to. God is my center, the unmoving constant. And that constant tells you, don't be worried about the mistakes that you made yesterday. But also don't be haunted by the fears of the unknown tomorrow. But live in the only moment where life can actually be enjoyed in the present. Right now, it's the only thing that's been promised to you. It's the only thing that's been given. But with that promise, doesn't come with the promise that life's going to be easy. In fact, whenever you became a follower of Jesus, you signed the dotted line, signing that away. With Christ comes taking up our own cross, being willing to die for this purpose. But Jesus promises us that God will give us everything we need in that walk. And that he'll be with us the entire way. Give your devotion to Jesus. He's the only God who can handle our worship. Make God your center. He's the only one that can give you fulfillment, that can ease you from your worry and the pains of anxiety that you feel, that can give you ultimate purpose and meaning. Give your devotion to God and make him your center and all of these other things in life will begin to slowly fade away. Make God your center and be eased from the worry and anxiety that you feel in the day-to-day life.